so if you were here last weekend, you heard me say that I stopped shaving last week in order to portray Jesus in my old church's Maundy Thursday and Good Friday services. So if you think I look more Jesus-ish than usual, that is intentional. Um, I want to let everyone know, though, that I am aware that being conformed to the likeness of Christ has nothing to do with having long hair or a beard. Uh, And I'm also aware that, in all likelihood, uh, Christ didn't look anything uh, like I do now. Uh, Because I'm not a Middle Eastern Jew, uh, which he was. Um, This is uh, neither here nor there, but uh, I I found uh, this article in Popular Mechanics. It came out like 15 years ago, but I found it through a a Google search uh, that had an article about using the science of forensic anthropology to uh, find out what Jesus probably actually looked like. And uh, this was their best guess. So uh, I won't bore you with all the details, but what they did was they studied the skulls of Galilean Semites and tried to come up with like what the average bone structure was around that time. Um, and they, uh, then they considered cultural things like uh, hair length and, and facial hair. And uh, this is their best guess. So... You know, it's, it's a guess. We'll never know uh, for sure what Jesus looked like. But uh, that's okay, because what Jesus did and said is a lot more important than what he looked like. But it's just interesting. Um, so now that you know that I probably don't look like Jesus, I want to invite you <laughs> uh, to come and see me portray Jesus uh, at Trinity Covenant Church's uh, Monday-Thursday service, if you'd like. Uh, it's uh, a recreation of Da Vinci's The Last Supper, and that's a picture from when we did it five years ago. Um, and it's, uh, it's happening both Thursday and Friday, but don't come on Friday, because on Friday we're having a good Friday service here. And uh, I, would, I would much prefer you all to come to that. Um, but uh, we don't have a, Mo- a Monday Thursday service at St. Paul's uh, this year. So um, if you're looking for that, some way to celebrate Holy Week, uh, you're welcome at uh, Trinity Covenant Church. So today is Palm Sunday, which means it's the day that we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the text we're looking at that describes that moment is John 12, 12 through 19. John 12, 12 through 19. It says, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So this is a big celebrity moment for Jesus. It wasn't long ago that he raised Lazarus from the dead. And word is spread about that. So the people are really excited about Jesus. 
And as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, there's a lot more people than would usually be there because they're there for what John calls the feast. Now, this feast was the Feast of Passover, uh, which was this joyous occasion in memory of when God freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Uh, Maybe you're familiar with that story. It comes from the book of Exodus. And the gist of of it is this. Um, The Israelites were in bondage. They were in slavery uh, in Egypt. And uh, one Israelite had had come out of Egypt, who we now know as Moses. And God had called Moses to return to Egypt and to send a message to Pharaoh, the leader there, that uh, he needed to let the Israelites go. And so uh, Moses did that reluctantly. He was a very reluctant leader. But he went and he said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no way. And uh, so God sent a series of plagues uh, to Egypt to make Pharaoh relent and uh, release his people. And these were some pretty nasty plagues. Uh, There was a plague of frogs, plague of locusts, a plague that turned the water blood red. Uh, But the worst plague of all uh, is what's referred to as the plague of the firstborn, uh, where God uh, struck down uh, the firstborn uh, in every household in one night. And uh, it was an extreme measure that was taken to free the Israelites. And, uh, but there was some instructions given before that happened in order to spare the Israelite children. And uh, what God told the Israelites to do was to slaughter a lamb and then put some of the blood from that lamb on the doorframe of the house. And so when the Lord's presence came through the land uh, to strike down the firstborns, it would see the blood on the doorframe of the Israelites' homes, and it would spare the children there. So hence the celebration of Passover, when God passed over the Israelite children. So, everyone's there celebrating the Passover when Jesus arrives. It's this joyous occasion, and the people in Jerusalem are all amped up because they're thinking, well, God showed his power over all the nations in his favor of Israel in the past. Maybe this guy Jesus is going to do that again. Maybe they thought Jesus is the one who's going to overthrow Rome, the one who's going to give Israel its rightful place of authority among the nations. And so when Jesus shows up, they greet him like you would a king. They go out to meet him, they wave the palm branches, and they shout, Hosanna, which basically means, save us now. And so what they're saying to Jesus is essentially, Jesus, be our king. Liberate our nation, destroy our oppressors. And the people are right to recognize Jesus as their king. Because Jesus does something in this triumphal entry to announce that, yes, he is in fact their king. He rides in on a young donkey. Now, John points out that Jesus rides in on a donkey in order to fulfill a prophecy. Right? Uh, It's a prophecy that comes from Zechariah 9.9. And this is what it says. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so when Jesus makes it a point to ride in on this young donkey, he's announcing that he's their king. But at the same time, he's announcing that he's a king unlike other kings. Because notice, as the prophecy tells us, his mode of transportation is humble. He is gentle and riding on a donkey. If Jesus had wanted to make a powerful royal entrance, 
he should have been riding on a big horse. But instead, like the prophecy says, he chose to ride on a donkey. So this is kind of like showing up on the red carpet, but in overalls. (laughs) Such a great Photoshop job, right? (laughs) So in this moment, Jesus declares himself to be king, but he he declares himself to be an unusual king. He's a humble king. He's a donkey-riding king. And not only that, but he's a king who's riding a donkey towards his own death. In John's Gospel, right after this joyous, uh, palm-waving procession, Jesus says to his disciples, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So essentially, Jesus says, the time has come for me to die. And this would have seemed so backwards to the disciples and to this crowd that had just welcomed him in. Um, It would have been like if uh, a dinner guest arrives and the food is all spread out and the host has spent all this time preparing it and then the, the dinner guest just says, oh, the time has come for me to fast. I mean, the host would be like, what, seriously? I I spent all day working on this. You know, why did you even bother to show up if you're not going to eat? And similarly, the crowd would have thought, Jesus, why did you even bother to show up if you're not going to reign? So Jesus wasn't what the crowd was expecting. If the crowd that had welcomed Jesus that day, as they had been celebrating Passover, was asked, Hey, who do you think Jesus is most like in the Passover story? I can imagine them giving several answers. So I'm imagining, like, you know, on those late-night shows where, like, Jay Leno or whatever would go out with his microphone, he asked people on the street. So it's Passover celebration, so he's out there, and he's like, so in the Passover story, who do you think this guy Jesus is like? And I think a lot of them would have said, oh, I think Jesus is like, he's going to be like Moses. He's going to lead his people out of bondage and into freedom. Or some of them might have said, oh, Jesus is like the Lord in the Exodus story. He's going to bring wrath upon our oppressors. Or they might have even said, I, you know, I think Jesus is going to be like Pharaoh. He's going to be a really powerful king. But in his case, God is going to be on his side, not against him. But what I seriously doubt that anyone in that crowd would have said is, I think that Jesus is going to be like the Lamb. I think he's going to be like the lamb on the night of the plague of the firstborn. He's, he's going to be like the lamb that gets slaughtered and his blood goes on the doorframe in order to protect Israel. I don't think that answer would have been on their radar, but that was the right answer. As John the Baptist said the first time that he saw Jesus in John's gospel, he said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the people wanted a conquering king, but what they got was a suffering savior. The people who wanted somebody who would kill their enemies, and what they got was someone who said that they needed to love their enemies. The people wanted someone who would build a kingdom through force, and what they got was someone who built a kingdom without throwing a single punch or swinging a single sword. Because our king is a humble king. He's a donkey-riding king. I want to take some time now to think about the humility of Jesus. And this is one of my, my favorite subjects, actually. So I could, um, 
could talk about this for a while. Um, but I know we don't have forever, so I'll try to limit it. But the, humil- the humility of Jesus just, just blows my mind every time I, I think about it. Um, here is a man who is the very incarnation of God. Right? God, the all-knowing, all-powerful, self-sufficient creator of everything. Colossians 1, 15-17, great passage about who Jesus is. It says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So what that says there is that Jesus is the source of all creation. He's the sustainer of all creation. And he's the reason for all of creation. So, that's a lot. It's a really big deal, right? And yet, Jesus, the source, the sustainer, the reason for everything, humbled himself and became a human being. He allowed himself to be localized and limited to a human body. I mean, he was born as a baby, a baby that had to learn how to walk and talk, uh, someone who, he needed someone to change his diapers and wipe his nose. Now, that is an incredible degree of humility for the omnipotent creator of the universe to subject himself to the experience of being a fragile baby. And then this baby grows up and lives a sinless life despite facing incredible temptation, and then allows himself to endure an excruciating death, which we're going to be remembering later this week. He allows himself to be uh, whipped and scourged, to have his hands and feet nailed to a cross, and, here's the thing, by the people that he created. You know, isn't it incredible to think that as Jesus was beaten and crucified, the people who did it were only able to draw breath Because Jesus himself had created them and sustained them. Because if it really is true that Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together, then that includes the men who killed him too. So this is is a mind-boggling level of humility. And it's even more amazing when we consider the power that Jesus had at his disposal. When Jesus was arrested, the Gospel of Matthew says that Peter uh, took out a sword and he tried to stop the arrest by cutting off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And here here was Jesus' response. Jesus said, Put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And here's the thing. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? So this is an amazing verse because it reveals to us that it would have been possible for Jesus to take out these guys. He could have taken them out, but he didn't do it. Instead, he humbled himself. Now, I won't speak for all of you, but I know that if I had power to call on an army of angels at any moment, I don't think I'd be able to restrain myself once that whip started scourging me. You know, and even if I made it through that, I definitely give up once the crowd started mocking me. 
I hate to be mocked. Nobody likes to be mocked. Luke 23.35 says that as Jesus was on the cross, the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. If I overheard that, then I knew I had the power to call a legion of angels. That would put me over the edge. I'd be like, yeah, I will save myself, punks. Look at this. How do you like this fire from heaven? But what amazes me over and over when I look at the life and death of Jesus is this incredible humility. This incredible restraint. And what we need to recognize is that this humility and restraint is a reflection of the character of God. You know, nobody gives us a better idea of what God is like than the incarnation of God, than Jesus himself. One of my favorite verses is Hebrews 1.3. It says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The exact representation of his being. So if we want to know what God is like, we need to look at Jesus. And what do we see when we look at Jesus? We see this incredible humility. This incredible restraint. We see a humble king. A donkey riding king. There's so much that we can learn from the humility of Jesus. And one thing I think we need to realize is that God's idea of power and the world's idea of power aren't the same. The way I've heard it described is uh, like this. The world emphasizes what's sometimes called right-handed power, while Jesus demonstrates what's called left-handed power. And uh, I'm not entirely sure why they're given these labels, but bear with me. So right-handed power is the power to get your way through money or force or physical strength. Um, It's the kind of power that's demonstrated by an army as it conquers a country, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, the power of military tactics and, and guns and that sort of thing. Uh, but left-handed power, on the other hand, that's the power of restraint. So if you get insulted and you don't insult back, especially when you've got a killer on insult, like a really clever one, that's, that power of restraint is left-handed power. Left-handed power is the power you exercise when you choose to let something go rather than seek revenge. It's the power you exercise when you forgive. And there's an interesting relationship between right-handed power and left-handed power, which is that the more right-handed power that you have, the more impressive the choice to exercise left-handed power is. Uh, You know, it's one thing not to seek revenge, but it's especially impressive if, you know, You're like James Bond. You're really wealthy and you're trained in martial arts and you can do most anything and get away with it. And Jesus' life is the most incredible display of left-handed power because he had a huge amount of right-handed power available to him. Legions of angels that he could have called on in a moment. He was God in the flesh. And yet he chose restraint. And we need to recognize the power in that restraint. It's not power in the worldly sense, but it is power, and it's amazing. So our king is a humble king. He's a donkey-riding king, 
And he's a very powerful king. But his power is not just right-handed, but it's left-handed as well. Now, the crowd that welcomed Jesus during that triumphal entry, they weren't interested in Jesus' left-handed power. They wanted Jesus to exercise right-handed power. Because they figured that if you're going to build a kingdom, that's the way to do it. But Jesus knew he was going to build his kingdom not through force, not through violence, but through love and sacrifice, through left-handed power. One time where this is evident is right after Jesus' arrest. Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. Now, when we hear Jesus say, My kingdom is not of this world, I think we have a tendency to think that what he's saying is his kingdom is is kind of off in some cloudy, abstract realm, disconnected from this earth. Um, You know, we get images of, like, angels playing harps on clouds and that sort of thing. But I want to suggest is that what Jesus is saying here when he says, My kingdom is not of this world, is that the means of attaining it are different from this world. Most earthly kingdoms are built on force and violence, right-handed power. Like Jesus says, if his kingdom was of this world, his servants would what? They would fight. But his kingdom is not of this world, because it's a kingdom built on left-handed power, of humility. So what does this mean for us today? Well, Jesus told his disciples... A servant is not above his master. In other words, those of us who follow Jesus, we really shouldn't expect that we're going to get to operate differently than he did. If our king is humble, we should be humble too. If our king prefers left-handed power to right-handed power, so should we. And if our king builds his kingdom on love and restraint, then we should also, as we seek to expand his kingdom. Now, I want to tread very carefully here with what I'm going to say next. Um, But I do think that this has some political ramifications. Uh, When Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem, the crowd saw him as a tool for right-handed power. Right? They blessed him, but when they realized that the way of Jesus was one of left-handed power, they disappeared. In fact, some commentators say that Some of the people that were yelling crucify him just a week later were probably in this crowd that welcomed him. Now, human nature hasn't changed since those days. Today, people still try to use Jesus as a tool for right-handed power. And just as the crowd on Palm Sunday saw Jesus as a means to making Israel dominant in the world, so today some Americans see Jesus as a tool for making America dominant in the world. But Jesus isn't a tool for national domination. The way of Jesus isn't domination. It's humble service. And please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that there's no place for right-handed power. I'm not saying that God never exercises right-handed power. But I want to caution us. Because I think we need to be wary of politics that exalt right-handed power and use Jesus to justify or endorse it. We need to be very, very careful about assigning Jesus to political platforms 
and especially to any platform that values the success of America over the health of other nations. Because just as Jesus on Palm Sunday wasn't only concerned with Israel, but the salvation of the whole world, so to today he's concerned not only with the health and well-being of America, but with people of all nations. The crowd that day saw Jesus as king, and they were right. But they failed to recognize that Jesus is a humble king, that he's a donkey-riding king, that he's a king whose rule is characterized by left-handed power. So let's not make that same mistake. Let's recognize him for who he really is and celebrate that. You know, he's not of this world, and that is good news. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are, um, you are beyond our understanding, but in such an amazing way, God. Lord, we are grateful for your humility because it is on account of your humility, your left-handed power, your restraint, that we exist and have been given the opportunity for redemption. And Lord, we thank you that you were uh, willing to be obedient to death on a cross so that we might be saved. Lord, I pray that as we seek to be your followers in the world, that you would help us to follow the way of Jesus. That you would help us to value that left-handed power, God. That you'd continue to build your kingdom through love and through sacrifice and humility, God. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would direct us and, and show us how to do that. We give you thanks, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.